0: Welcome to this fourth episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast from Obesity UK in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson. This series of podcasts delves into the major topics surrounding obesity. Our main aim is to empower and provide information to people living with obesity by raising awareness and unpacking the psychological factors and stigma associated with it. We'll be giving people a voice to help them gain access to the treatment that's right for them. I'm Sarah Labrock and I'm your host for this series. With me today, I have Professor Jason Halford and Professor Marion Hetherington. In this episode, we will discuss the psychology of eating and how we can learn from that. So welcome to the podcast, Marian and Jason. Thank you. <laughs> to begin with, we'd love to hear a little bit more about each of you. So Marion, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and work first, please?
1: Yes, yeah, sure, Sarah. So I work mostly with very young people, mostly infants at the moment, And what we're looking at are the um, eating patterns that are established early on in life. And we've been doing some interventions to try to encourage young kids, especially infants to eat vegetables, because we know that by the age of going to school, eating habits are quite well established. So we figure that infancy is a really critical period for establishing some healthy eating habits and it's more difficult to do that after school age because then children are influenced by all these other outside factors. So my, my interests are largely with infancy and with childhood. But I, in the past, I've done some work on anorexia of ageing. So looking at how we lose our appetite as we get older
0: okay really interesting and I'm going to find this really interesting on a personal level as well because I have a 22 month year old daughter so I'm very conscious about uh, and I'm someone that lives with obesity myself so I'm very conscious that I don't want to instill kind of stuff that's happened to me historically kind of into her so um so yeah I really enjoy this conversation so um thank you so Jason over to you same question please just a little bit about kind of you and your work that'd be great
2: Yes, I started my work very much in the sort of biology of appetite control and uh, working on developing anti-obesity drugs a very, very long time ago. And over time, that's kind of morphed into a more general interest in the effects of all sorts of interventions, nutritional, psychological, pharmacological and surgical on people's eating behaviour, but also their psychology as well. And that's brought me into sorts of sorts lots of interesting areas in terms of impact of stigma and self-stigmatization on treatment outcomes. And I've also done a little bit of work separately around the promotion of unhealthy foods to children uh, and how exposure to adverts, uh, vloggers, advert games, even front-of-pack labeling and portion sizes can have an impact on children's eating behavior.
0: Okay, really interesting. So this is going to be great to kind of dig into this a little bit more and find out some more info. So can we talk a little bit more then around the psychology of eating?
1: Well, maybe I'll start because I, I usually do research in very early life. Um, and today I've just been speaking to my students about how early on in life eating behaviour begins to be established. And what I was telling my students earlier today is that eating behaviour patterns start in utero, meaning that the foetus already has an exposure to the maternal diet And exposure to other aspects of the external environment, such as pollutants, for example, because of the placenta and there's an exchange of chemicals. Say you've got a mum who's eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. Some of the chemicals from fruits and vegetables, which are are the things that make them flavoursome and very tasty, some of those chemicals go through into the amniotic fluid. And by the, the third trimester of pregnancy, already the fetus is, is swallowing about one liter of amniotic fluid per day. So if the mum is already eating lots of foods that are you know high in chili and curry and cardamom and cumin and all of these flavors, already her fetus is already being exposed to that. So by the time mum breastfeed, baby is then getting the same sorts of volatiles in the milk, And and getting that flavour exposure. So I would say that the psychology of eating really starts from the day of conception, and so that first thousand days is really critical. So from the day of conception to twenty four months, because in that that crucial period of time, you'll get a lot of exposure to different flavours through mum's milk, and then of course through solid food introduction that's where the family diet is introduced. So clearly, if families have um, a lot of fruits and vegetables in their diet, lots of plant-based foods, then the children will acquire a liking for those foods because those are the foods that they've already become accustomed to through in mutual experience, then breast milk, um, and then solid food introduction. So what we would say is that early on in life is that really crucial period to intervene in terms of establishing healthy lifestyle.
2: No, I think eating is one of the most intimate things that we do and the kind of interface between our own biology and the outside world, the outside environment. And, you know, there's lots of biological systems underpinning that and and provoking hunger, leading people to consume, and then obviously turning those signals off and preparing them for periods uh, to do other things. But that's kind of the regulatory part of of eating behaviour. A lot of eating is about reward and enjoyment. We eat food because it is pleasant. And it's pleasant in and of itself. It is also associated with pleasure. Eating together is a pleasurable communal experience. And I think also food operates at a higher level. Uh, And this is where I think it's quite important for many people living with obesity is often functional in other ways in terms of comfort and and looking after oneself and, and caring for oneself. You know, and I think when you're under periods of psychological stress, Uh, having difficulty coping people often turn to food because it has that warm nurturing feeling and it's kind of a safe place as well so I think you can think of food on a just a regulatory uh, thing you can think about the enjoyment of food but then I think there's also a psychology of food which has nothing to do with appetite processes at
0: all. I do know there is that kind of biological kind of Part here where genetically some people can be more predisposed to to choosing certain foods because of their genetic makeup. Um, I had some genetic testing done, and I found out that I have the MC4 kind of receptor. So that means that apparently that I'm more likely to choose fattier foods than non-fattier foods, and and I just think it's mad that that my genetic makeup is making me kind of make those choices because obviously for a large period of my life I've just thought it's because I have got a lack of willpower or. It's because I'm making bad choices. You know, it's kind of that. Well, whereas actually I'm now understanding that it's a lot more complicated than that. And this is the way I was kind of made, you know. And how you know, how important do you think that sort of messaging is?
2: Absolutely incredibly important. There is a biology, biology of obesity. And it's not just one biological issue that we can fix as a whole. Uh, genetics, uh, metabolism, physiology around this, which makes things difficult for people living with obesity. Now, certainly I've talked about hunger and appetite. Appetite control, and perhaps we can talk about systems within a meal, satiation, and after a meal, satiety. Now, those should normally help you control your food intake, but often people living with obesity, and particularly at higher levels of BMI or those who suffer from binge eating, those mechanisms do not work. So, when you ask people to control their appetite, you're asking them to engage in a behavior which their biology isn't there to support them with. So, you know, food is not serving its function. Food should fill you. It should sate you. But for people living with obesity, it's not. And when you start looking at it from that perspective, you begin to understand people's relationship with food in a different way. So you don't get this narrative of lacking willpower. You actually begin to understand that these people need additional willpower to do what many people find it easy to do. And it's difficult to have all of those cognitive resources all of the time devoted to ensuring that you don't overeat, you know, because you're operating at a deficit at that biological level. But there are also other aspects as well, such as, such as uh, disinhibition and the fact that, that people living with obesity often describe that uh, the food is in control of them rather than they are in control of the food. And, and people often conceptualise this as food addiction or at least an addiction to eating. And I think that's very prescient because what people living with obesity want is to be in control. What they want is to gain control through whatever therapeutic possibilities that we give them. And and being in control is great. Psychologically, being in control of anything is great. Being not in control of something and being not in control of something such as your eating behaviour and your own body weight has psychological consequences because of that. It impacts on your self-efficacy.
0: Absolutely. And actually, one of the things I always say around the willpower argument is, I would say people living with obesity probably have the most willpower I've ever seen in any out of out of anyone because there's not many people that can actually do 800 calorie diets, for instance, for prolonged periods of time and lose significant amounts of weight. But actually, most people living with obesity will have done those that diet or, or many of those diets over the years to you know, and then are at the point where they're living with obesity. And I. I don't think people appreciate that, that actually there's been a huge amount of willpower going into that um, and kind of, you know, having to, to restrict themselves for such a long period of time. Just to touching back on the addiction piece, you know, we talk about, you know, being addicted to food and also like sugar being addictive, for instance. Is this true? Can we be addicted to foods and can is sugar addictive? I
2: think there was a lot of push around specific nutrients being addictive to people. And actually, the the, the, uh, neurobiology doesn't really support that. Uh, What it actually points to is a more of what we used to call a psychological addiction. But I think now we'd actually talk about it because I think people are, when you think of cravings, they're they're not for nutrients. They might be for sweetness, but blind and large, they're for specific things. And here, Maren has a great deal of experience because she's worked in her past academic life on chocolate. So I think it might be good to... uh, in Marion on this because she's, she's a net expert here. But it, the, the cravings are specifically for foods, often could be sweet or could be savoury, not for nutrients. Studies that we
1: did in the past around the idea of chocolate addiction is just as Jason has said, people um, crave certain foods like chocolate, and partly that's because of the symbolism of chocolate in our society. You know, we use chocolate. As a treat, we use it as something that is really special, and we use it at Valentine's Day and all sorts of places in our in our calendar to sort of recognize how much we love somebody or how much we care for them. So it's really hard to disentangle, you know, what's in chocolate versus other types of foods. Of course it's sweet, but it also has this symbolic um uh, characteristic, which is beyond its mere nutrients. And there was a beautiful study done by Paul Rosen many years ago where he gave people um, cocoa capsules or he gave them capsules that contained um, all the ingredients except for the active ingredients of cocoa um, or he gave them nothing and then he gave them bar of chocolate. And when people have a craving, and they go for the chocolate bar, that satisfies the craving, not the cocoa capsules, and certainly not anything that doesn't have the active ingredient of a cocoa capsule. So in answer to your question about food addiction, it's really controversial because there are so many people who are working on this notion of food addiction. The way that I understand it is that it's um, more or less around, the, what we studied anyway, was a, a people feeling loss of control just as Jason said earlier about how important it is to feel control and for certain people for certain foods loss of control is prominent and it, it, there's a lot of guilt around that and a lot of feelings of failure around not being able to c- control intake of something like chocolate so it becomes a real kind of fear food and we see this in bulimia and we see it in binge eating disorder and I'm not sure why we would need to have something like food addiction to help us explain what we already understand.
0: So just going back to like chocolate then, so that's something I'm very mindful of not trying to introduce into my daughter's diet too young, because I think what she doesn't know won't hurt her, kind of, she doesn't know what chocolate is yet, so why would I be giving it her? Yeah, um, but there is a point where obviously, you know, I eat chocolate, she will see me eating chocolate, so, you know, where do I, where is the best point to introduce this and not make it something that she then? becomes kind of craving or or seeing the I don't know the more comfort value from it and just sees it as chocolate she might like it every now and again she can have it we all have a balanced diet you know where where do you where is the right way to do it or is there not
1: I don't know if there's the right time to introduce something like chocolate as such I would just say that what you're doing is great in terms of you know there's no need to, <laughs> to know about chocolate just yet this is only 22 months is that right So what I would say, though, is if she does see you eating it, then, of course, she will want to have it because everything that you do in terms of food, she'll want to do too. She'll want to mimic you. She'll want to copy you. She'll want to be like you. What I would say, though, is that some of the research that's been done around things like treats uh, by Leanne Birch, um, who was at Penn State University some years ago, she, um, in her earlier studies um, in Illinois, she was using treat foods around children Um, and she prevented them from having those treats. So they would be there, they could see them, but they were in a jar and they couldn't have them. And what she found was that the children who were given the treats, these were um, goldfish crackers, very American. (laughs) I don't know if we have them here, but anyway, they're, they're really delicious very cheesy and very moorish and and the kids would just talk about them all the time because they could see them but they couldn't get access to them that was part of the study and the kids who could have a little bit of them didn't talk about them very much so if one has chocolate in the house or other treats in the house and it's obvious we have them but we don't let the kids have them then that becomes something intriguing and appealing to children Whereas, as you say about balance, if you have them, you have a little bit here and there, you know, every so often, there's no harm to that. The problem becomes where it be- it's um, somehow much more rewarding and more interesting
2: because it's forbidden. They're going to be exposed to these things through their friends. They're going to be targeted by marketing in various ways. And so actually, you know, setting up the relationship between them and their food in a, in, a, in, in the way that Marion's described is kind of the best way. It's preparation because absence of knowledge means when their friends come home and says, "Well, I'm I'm having full fat, uh, full sugar cola." You know, we go uh, and have, go to fast food restaurants every day, or we do this that. Your child's going to want to do that. They'll perhaps have go to birthday parties at these vents or venues. They'll go to cinemas where all this stuff is there. And if they have a, a, a normalised relationship with it, uh, one which you know, in moderation. Not a complete ban or denial. Then you know, I think that they're, they're best equipped as they can be. It's it's a lifelong of learning uh, and relationships with food, which, as Marin has articulated, starts very very early.
1: We see avid um, appetite in babies very early on. And um, Albert Stunkard, Mickey Stunkard, many years ago, I think it was in the fifties and sixties, he did a study showing that um, babies who were born to families with obesity, they were more avid. Consumers of formula milk. So, when the formula milk was being measured in terms of the rate of delivery to the babies, the the babies that have this genotype, as it were, this genetic uh, propensity, they showed a much more avid appetite. So, we see it right from breastfeeding, from bottle feeding, from very early on in life. And I think, you know, in order to understand that gene environment interaction, We can do our bit as parents to encourage healthy eating, but if a child has a really avid appetite, maybe thinking about what would fill them up that would be healthy, you know, like, so fruits are really delightful and really healthy in some ways, but lots of sugar in some fruits, but we have to be aware that things that are high in fiber are gonna be very filling. Speaking to Jason's point about satiety, something that's high in fiber is healthy, lots of nutrients, and it'll fill them up for longer.
0: I just wanted to come back to something we did touch up on. Actually, Mariam, you brought it in earlier around kind of um, emotional eating and also kind of binge eating. Can we have a bit of a chat about kind of why kind of why do we see that happening? Kind of and, and how do we prevent un- unhealthy relationships with food?
1: When parents use food to soothe, that sets up a kind of relationship with food that's, uh, that, as Jason said, is not entirely homeostatic. It's not entirely hunger based or driven by biology. And instead of a hug, maybe giving food is a quick way to to make sure that they're not distressed. And actually using that every time a child is distressed or using food to try to get a child back to sleep or something like this, when they're not particularly hungry, then that can set up that kind of system in which the expectation is that when you're distressed, when you feel sad, when you feel upset, when you feel pain, you go to food. And that starts very early on. And so, again, talking about uh, Leanne Birch, who's sadly no longer with us, but her research from the Insight Trial—they were doing a study looking at food to soothe and checking when a baby wakes up during the night, should they be hugged, should they be their nappy be changed, or should they, you know, be fed? So, which is it? Is it love? Is it liquid? Or is it, you know, laundry? Is it just, you know, changing the diaper? And I think if we think about the baby and what the baby is communicating with us, then we need to be able to respond to that rather than imagining that food will solve everything.
0: So how do we prevent that then, Jason? Is this something you can talk to around, you know, how can you look at ways of preventing unhealthy relationships with food? Can we do that or is it just something that kind of we just need to be mindful of? I think
2: everything is modifiable. Uh, But remember, when something is the result of lifelong learning and the food environment, including the commercial food environment as well as the physical food environment, reinforces that. It's very difficult for the individual. So things can be done. I think we can look at when we think about stress and coping, for instance, we can look about what leads to a temptation. What are your internal signals? Uh, What is your emotional state? Where physically do these signals happen? And We can help people deal with that, perhaps avoiding those temptations. uh, And if temptations can't avoid them dealing with them so they don't turn into lapses. Similar with lapses, uh, if they do lapse, you know, understanding the physiological underpinnings of the lapse, you know, how did you feel in terms of hunger, your emotional context, and the environmental context. We know lots of lapses, because we all do this, late in the evening and at weekends, you know, when we're alone, mind, we've been good all day. And as well, if, if you've lapsed, one lapse is not the end of the world. It's obviously repeated laps. But the problem with one lapse is it leads to another because you get that knock in self-confidence, that impact on self-efficacy, that feeling that, oh no, I'm no longer in control of my diet. So you get that negative feedback loop. And I think that that's what we need to deal with when we're working with people living with obesity about those sorts of situations, but also dealing with the consequences when things don't work out. Because, you know, nine times out of 10, is great. You know, that one, one time out of 10, yeah, that was not so good. But, you know, the consequences of that are not as great as you think. I think another thing we can do is really think about what we are asking people to do, and, and Marin knows this literature probably better than I do. But there's a whole literature on dieting and emotional eating, and it comes it comes from the social psychology literature in the 70s and 80s, and, and we've seen that uh, in replicated in people living with obesity around how dieting can actually have perverse effects in terms of increasing hunger hormones and decreasing the satiety hormones and also a negative psychological effects, cognitive impairment, dysphoria, more generalized effects on mood. And obviously, because you're distracted, because you're focused on trying to keep that diet. And I just think it's, it's quite an odd paradox, given what I said towards the start of, 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 the, of this podcast is we're asking people, with impaired appetite systems to engage in activity which impairs their appetite system further. So they're getting a double whammy. So I think when we're looking at calorie reduction, we have to be very clever. And some of the things Marion was talking about, the use of foods with fibre and finding ways of satisfying appetite while people are in calorie reduction is very, very important.
1: The literature that Jason was referring to from the 70s, 80s and onwards was really showing that when People engage in dieting behaviours. They feel like they're missing out and they surely are missing out because some of the say that you mentioned earlier, where it's 850 calories a day, takes huge willpower to do that. But there is a feeling of being somehow different, set apart and that you're missing out on things that you really love. And Jason mentioned earlier that we eat for pleasure and to have all these things that we love, you know, taken away from us. It does have a psychological effect on feeling that you're missing out, that this is something you're depriving yourself of. So it's not just biological hunger, because the body very quickly knows when you're trying to cut back on energy intake, because we're designed to prevent, you know, that system happening. We, we're designed to make up for the fact that, you know, that we're, we're losing energy. So we conserve energy. So when, when anyone goes on a diet and they're trying to limit food intake, a biological system will kick in to conserve energy. You feel deprived. You have your body setting yourself up to conserve energy. And on top of that, you're surrounded by people who are eating what, what appears to be really pleasurable foods and you can't have them. So those early studies in dieting showed that it was that feeling of being deprived that led people to think, what the hell, I'm just going to have whatever this is. And then binges might start.
0: I know a lot of people find it difficult to dislike or to kind of find fault with the diet industry because they're kind of like, well, you know, this is where people with obesity are always looking for excuses. And, you know, it's, um, you know, they just need to be on a, a stricter eating, this, that and the other. And, and you know, and I have a real bee in my bonnet about the likes of Slimming World and Weight Watchers, for instance, because, you know, they are businesses. And they are set up for people to fail because that's what they want. So that you come back each week and still keep paying you £5 to get weighed. And then you will put the weight back on and you'll come back again, you know, further down the line. And, and it's the psychology of it that I find really hard around the fact that you go to these classes and you you sit there and you're clapping someone for losing half a pound, for instance, yet you're then coming down on someone really hard for putting half a pound on. Um, And it's, and it's that kind of the language and the psychology around that, that I find really hard because we all know that bodies react differently to foods. They react differently at different times of the day and month to, to how we hold on to food or lose food. So the fact someone's lost half a pound or put half a pound on is really ridiculous that we even celebrate either, to be honest, because you know that's just how the body is. Um, and I do find the fact that these things exist and millions of people are going to them, you know, quite hard to deal with, really. Just moving into like the dieting conversation a little bit more, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of, you know, diets like this and just the dieting industry in general, and especially for those people living with obesity?
2: Well, I think there are different approaches certain dif- through different people. And I think for people living with obesity, they should really be going to their healthcare practitioner and actually looking for properly medical su- medical support. And I think we know people living with obesity don't. Uh, they feel it's entirely their own problem. They don't think it's anything to do with their healthcare practitioner. And they'll struggle. In the UK, we reckon, from starting struggling seriously with their weight to seeing their healthcare practitioner, at least having their first conversation, is nine years. And you can think about how many, Failed attempts, and also the impact on on potential impact on the on that individual's health. And so, when they get to see the h the healthcare practitioner, you know, assuming treatment options are available, and we don't even want to start that conversation here, uh, but assuming that it's going to be much more difficult to treat because so much water has passed under on, on the bridge, and so many uh, bad experiences and knocks on self efficacy. Now, I think in weight loss, it's good to focus on other successes rather than just changes in body weight per se. You know, there is achievements in terms of eating healthier. Uh, there is achievements in terms of other things. Eventually, when you're capable of doing it, exercise can be very rewarding, and that's a big achievement. It doesn't count all that much to the. Weight loss compared with a caloric reduction, but it has a tremendous impact on health and psychological well-being. So there are other things to stress. And, and yes, it's great to celebrate success, and it's great for your peers to se- uh, celebrate. You know, nobody should be shamed. Shaming does not work. The idea that shaming produces anything but negative consequences, uh, there's no evidence for it. And yet we still have these conversations with politicians and, and some healthcare practitioners.
1: About 25 years ago now, <laughs> I wrote a paper about the non-dieting approach because I was very inspired by a manual that came out of Canada from Toronto from Polly and Herman showing how um, people living with obesity could uh, eat more healthily without necessarily focusing on weight loss. And we compared that program, the non-dieting approach, with the NHS um, diets of the time And what we found was that the non-dieting approach was really around self-acceptance. It was about building confidence. It was about eating well. And I think both groups lost the exact same amount of weight. But one group, it was just not about weight loss. It was just more about, you know, getting in touch with your um, internal cues of hunger and satiety, that kind of thing. But just to answer your point about uh, Weight Watchers, Slimming World and other businesses being business. Well, I've worked in the United States, as has Jason. And a lot of the healthcare practitioners, they are running businesses. So I'm not so sure that I would anymore say, this is 25 years later after I wrote that article, but I wouldn't say that necessarily those businesses want you to fail. I think they celebrate success. I mean, I I have to declare an interest here. I've been to... One of the slimming world, you know, award ceremonies, and they are, you know, they give people these amazing awards for for losing weight, and keeping it off, that kind of thing. But I would say to you that healthcare practitioners in the states, they are businesses too, and I don't think that they're out to get money from you from failing. I think that people are encouraged to live well because. You know, <laughs> you know it, it. It's it's going to mean that, uh, that they'll live a, a, a longer life, better life if they're healthier. But I don't think they're setting people up to fail necessarily, because I think some people seem to do really well with Slimming World or you know Weight Watchers or volumetrics or whatever it is. But as Jason said, it's 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 really individualized and personalized. What will work for one person will not work for another. And maybe as a psychologist, what I would say is joining a group is probably helpful insofar as you get that support that you might not not get anywhere else.
0: Yeah, And I, I appreciate all those comments and I totally agree. I think the bit for me that I struggle with, though, with kind of some of the dieting is the science behind it. So we know that people living with obesity, kind of you know, going back to this whole survival mechanism, you know, have this propensity that they will lose weight because I've done it lots of times but it always goes back on again, if not more. And so if we know that that's a mechanism that will happen, you know, regardless of how much or weight, you know, I've lost eight and a half stone in one go once um, and it all went back on again. And it was during those times where the weight was going back on that I probably felt the worst I've ever felt about myself because I felt like an utter failure that I'd managed to lose this weight and it's all going back on again. And what on earth going on and why can't I control this? And for me, it's kind of that point of if we know that that's going to happen, because the data suggests that 95% of people will put that weight back on over five years, it's kind of like, why are we still pushing people to focus on weight rather than health? Because, you know, and why are we celebrating weight loss rather than health? You know, that's the bit for me, it's around the kind of framing of it, because I think for some people, they will never be able to s- sustain a huge amount of weight loss but they may become a lot healthier and fitter and all those kind of positive things but we're built up in a way or kind of programmed in a way that it's all about this transformation of weight loss and that's all we kind of seem to celebrate so it'd be good to get your thoughts on that
2: well i think this is one of the problems is we very much even in the best ways where well, we talked about per- personalizing medicine things like that and that focuses on the individual But that doesn't recognize the environment we put the individual back in. I mean, and often people can be in a very dynamic weight loss phase, and that's great, and they're rolling with it and success. But weight management is really the undiscovered country in, in, in our science uh, and this. And we don't know how to help people uh, keep that weight off. Very few people do. And that's whatever. The th- you can even look at bariatric surgery, the most radical approach there, and you see weight regain. And, and I think uh, some of that is, is about not preparing the patient psychologically for what happens when you lose the weight and the consequences thereof but i think also it's about the environment i mean you know if you treat somebody uh for alcoholism and they go clean but they have to go to a pub every day and not drink that would be really really difficult well people living with obesity you can't avoid food you've got to eat there's no way of avoiding it and so you know we have to think about the whole this is where public health i think is very important people separate Treatment from public health and prevention. No, it's too. You know, public health people say treatment doesn't work. People regain weight. We're going well. Yes, you need to work with the individual. You know, they still have a weight story. We don't forget individuals with obesity. We've got to work with them and come up with solutions out there. But then we need to put those individuals or be able to help those individuals in a supportive way back into the food environment. The food environment's just got to be a lot better than it is. Ultimately.
1: Well, just to say that I think this is a really hot topic that as a planet, we're looking towards making food supplies more sustainable and encouraging more people to eat more plant based diets. So I think that we can widen out this argument about all of us. All of us need to know that we're eating food locally and that we're not contributing to um, climate change. And so there's there's a real movement right now to try to encourage us to eat well as a nation and then as a world. And I do a little bit of work in Uganda, and one of the things that I've been noticing in Uganda is the increase in overweight obesity. At the same time, as one third of the population have stunting, so they have this double burden of people who are now ill because they've, um, you know, they're they're not eating enough and they have hidden hunger, lack of nutrients, lack of vitamins, and at the same time, the wealthier people within the nation. Um, are are now experiencing what we're experiencing in the West. So just as Jason said, it's partly our genetics and partly the environments that we put people into. And unfortunately, in Uganda, people are looking at our diets and aspiring towards them and seeing things like sugar-sweetened beverages and snack foods as being status
0: symbols. And if I, if we bring it back to like so the UK government really and kind of the restrictions that they're trying to bring in after the back of the the latest obesity strategy document that came out at the end of last year, so looking at things like restricting you know high fat, high sugar, salt etc, and then also kind of ban on adverts on TV and um, the kind of 9 p.m watershed, do you think these will be effective interventions, not just for population level people but for kind of people living with obesity specifically?
2: I mean, these are very public health sorts of things. There's a ban on junk food advertising before 9pm and online, prohibiting sweets at checkouts, banning two-for-one offers on junk foods, carry labeling on restaurants and on alcohol, mandatory front of traffic lighting all things that i've advocated for i've been working 15 years to bring in but what we haven't seen are things like looking at the cost of healthy versus unhealthy foods i mean we have a, a sugar tax on soda but very little and also social inequalities and food poverty so we've not looked at that and we know inequalities is important in obesity uh, and so i think we the, the, there is there's some good stuff on the public health side of things but there's not so much disincentivizing uh, through taxation unhealthy eating perhaps and that's a controversial thing but actually let's look at the positive things how can we incentivize healthy eating and make the healthier options the norm now that's a matter of affordability it's a matter of acceptability as well you know i think we need to make healthy foods or provide healthy foods that people actually want to eat
0: and I think a point here as well plays into the the stigma that we have around obesity, because when it comes to taxation on things like sugary drinks and and, and these kind of things, what we find is that the messaging from society is then kind of like, well, we're now having to pay more for these things because people can't control how much they have, and you know, people living with obesity they just want to eat too much. So it kind of, for me, for me, it's like that it's such a complex weave of of what we need to do to get it all working in the way we want it to, because you know we I, I you know i do think these things ha play have a place because we live in an obesogenic environment and the more we can change that the better but then it, when you've got society just thinking so negatively and and having that messaging around just eat less move more and that's all they think that the answer is um you know it's kind of hard to then kind of get that positive messaging going in the right way for everybody
2: and there are very powerful voices advocating those sorts of messages as well for financial reasons but it comes back to what Marin has been talking about about we need and everybody has a right to a healthy nutritious and sustainable diet that's what we need across the board uh, and this is why issues around hunger and obesity uh, and global health are becoming you know we never used to talk about these sorts of things when we talked to in obesity meetings at all uh, and now you know it it it, it We understand the complexity of the food system, but also its fragility as well. You know, our current food system is not resilient. And we've seen what a a global shock can do to the food system. We're living through it at the moment. Uh, And that means that all the things Marion talks about would provide us uh, much more resilience, much more sustainability in the food system. Our economy is built on our health. Clearly, if we want
1: to move towards a more plant-based diet, we have to encourage children to like plant-based foods. So that all begins early on in life. And as I said earlier, I think that setting up those preferences means that when the time comes for children to make their own decisions about snacks and that kind of thing, they'll reach out for the fruits and vegetables rather than for the snacks that are high in fat and sugar and salt.
0: I think for me, if I kind of recap what we've been through, I think the bit for me is kind of like highlighting how important eating is from such a very infant stage well from kind of within the womb um, and the impact that that has and then going through life and also I think the fact that like Jason touched upon a few times around this individualized kind of care and how everybody is different and because everyone's genetic makeup is very different and we don't know kind of which preferences people are going to have or which genotypes they have you know I think we need to be very mindful of that when we are kind of directing them onto kind of the right or choices or the healthier choices or whichever wh- road that they go down. Thank you for being my guests today. Um, it's a real pleasure to speak to you about the psychology of eating. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast with me, Sarah LeBrock. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and give it a five star review. It really helps people find us and keep listening every Thursday morning for a new episode of the Reality of Obesity podcast.